we are into the um, final week, not of the mind, but the final week of Jesus' life. Tonight we are going to cover, we're going to pick up from Sunday, Palm Sunday, and we're going to carry it all the way through Saturday. And then Sunday, um, and by the way, how, how many of you coming Sunday? Good for you. How many coming Saturday night? Better for you. Good job. All right, so yeah, come on um, Saturday, Sunday. Make sure you RSVP. If you have not done that, that is a huge blessing um, to our people to be able to know where to um, maneuver seats. So please RSVP for one of the eight services. Bring friends. I, I'm telling you, you do not want to uh, miss this weekend. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna take it all the way to there. If you have the handout. I have some blanks for you to fill out. For those of you who were here early, the handouts probably arrived after you, so they're right back at that table. So grab one of those. And we're really going to focus tonight. We're going to focus on the last week of Christ's life, but we're really going to focus in on one particular moment. We're going to build the stage around that. How many watch court TV or like true TV or, or just love courtroom dramas and stuff like that. Okay. Tonight we're going to do one of those things. We're, this is going to be like a court case. This is going to be like cold files or cold case files or something like that. And we're really going to look at the, the trials that Jesus um, went into. And so we're going to hear past evidence. We're going to watch the trial and we're going to see what happens after that. If you have your Bible, you're going to turn to John chapter 19, but you're going to hold there while we set the stage a little bit. So we get to Sunday, Palm Sunday, five days before Jesus hangs on the cross. Jesus comes riding in. What does he come riding in on? A donkey, okay? A donkey. And so people start laying their clothes. They start waving palm fronds. They're yelling, hallelujah. They're praising Jesus. Why? Who do they think he is? The Savior, the Messiah. This is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. And so people are cheering Jesus. Not only the people, but his disciples. Everybody that was around were lining the streets. As Jesus approached to Jerusalem, crowds amassed. It was huge. And here comes Jesus on a donkey. And from that moment on, things started to unravel. In five days, in five days, in six chapters in John, we go from hallelujah to crucify. In five days. How many have ever had a group of friends just turn on you? Just turn on you. Maybe some of you have to go all the way back to high school, but but you know who they are. You stalk their Facebook. You see what they're up to. Okay, but they, they... At some point, they turned on you. Imagine riding into a town and the entire... And it's not even a town. This is Jerusalem. It's not even Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem times 10 because it's the festival time. And so the place is popping and everybody's screaming. Imagine riding in to that. And then standing in front of many of the same people. Maybe having eye contact with some of the very same people. And they are asking for you to be hung on a cross. How could you do something so bad to turn the tide so quickly? The triumphal entry. 
marks Jesus, the beginning of the end for Jesus. We call it Palm Sunday. He rides into town to shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And then he gets into the the town and guess what he does? Nothing. Now, switch sandals. Get out of Jesus' sandals and go into the people. You've just been screaming. You've been cheering. You've been waving the palm fronds. Um, You're trying to find your cloak that the donkey trampled upon and and you're waiting. You're like, oh, this is going to be good. Watch what happens. And maybe, maybe you even have enough guts to start taunting some guards. Maybe. Who knows? And you're just, everybody's following Jesus. And he gets off the donkey. Just picture this moment. He gets off the donkey. And everybody's like, and nothing. Nothing happens. Well, it's getting late. Let's go. What? What do you do? He just leaves and, and everybody's just left standing there. You're like, okay. Everybody's awaiting something and yet nothing. Even the disciples, imagine their embarrassment. Imagine the questions they have to try to answer. Because you need to remember the disciples were every bit as confused as everybody else. Nothing changed. Monday rolls around. Jesus gets to the temple. And what he sees is something he saw a couple years ago. And for the second time in Jesus' recorded ministry, he clears the temple. He upturns tables. Doves flying everywhere, money ching. Monday he also curses a fig tree. And we'll find out later on Tuesday the results of that. But yet again, nothing happens. Rome still Rome. The Sanhedrin's still the Sanhedrin. Jews are still Under the fist of Rome, the religious structure hasn't changed, the social structure hasn't changed, the political structure hasn't changed, and no one is sitting on the throne. Why would Jesus turn the the tables over anyway? We won't spend too much time on that, but a lot of people have used that moment to say, see, you shouldn't sell. Like if Jesus walked into our foyer, he'd just go right to the bookstore and start taking everything off. The reason why Jesus was so angry was not what they were selling, but where they were selling. They were selling in what's called the quarter of the Gentiles. They were selling and changing money. And much of what they were doing was actually a help. So people didn't have to carry their sacrifice miles. They can come to the temple, buy it, exchange the money, buy it, and then sacrifice. It was actually providing some help. But it was where they were doing it. They were doing it in Solomon's colonnade, in the portico, in in, in the, the, the court of the Gentiles. This was the one place in the temple where anybody and everybody could go. 
Man, woman, child, Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. Anybody can go. This is the one place where anybody was able to come worship God. And this was the place that the leadership chose to do this. And Jesus was frustrated with that. Tuesday was a big day. Jesus, most of the confrontations you see in Jesus' last week happened on Tuesday. Jesus had confrontations with the Jewish leaders, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, about his authority, who he was, about paying tribute to Caesar. He talked about the resurrection, which, of course, the Sadducees wouldn't believe, and the Pharisees actually would understand that. This is where he talked about what the greatest commandment was. It was during this time that he denounces the leaders and calls them a brood of vipers. And this is also the day he gives the famous Mount Olivet Sermon. Tuesday was a busy day. Jesus made a lot of enemies on Tuesday. And with each day that ticked away, people were losing hope in what Jesus was there to do. It doesn't look like Rome's going to be overturned. Wednesday rolls around, and we don't know what happens because the Bible doesn't record anything on Wednesday. And then we get to Thursday. Jesus and his disciples prepared for the Passover. Thursday is when they had their Last Supper. Thursday night is when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Judas betrayed him with a kiss. And where Jesus was violently arrested and underwent seven absolutely unfair trials. So in the upper room, Jesus gets with his disciples, has the Last Supper, and he starts turning the table a little bit. He starts talking about his death. He starts preparing them for what's about to happen. We see Judas leave to betray him. During this time, Jews all over Jerusalem would be commemorating the Passover that happened in the Exodus. Remember back 1,500 years before. They would be reading out of what we know as Exodus 12. They'd be preparing the lamb They'd be eating the lamb, breaking bread, having fellowship deep into the night. And then Jesus leads them out to the garden. They start singing psalms and praising God. Disciples still really unsure what's happening. Jesus goes to the garden. And we see in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus goes through three garden prayers. This was not a peaceful time for Jesus. The Bible does not describe this as tranquil. It says he was tormented very heavily. He was sore amazed and exceedingly sorrowful. Jesus knew that he had the sins of the world to bear. And it was about to come down. It was during this garden scene that his disciples decided to sleep. Leaving Jesus alone. 
The Jewish leaders and the guard would eventually find him led by Judas. We see the betrayal in Matthew chapter 26, 47 through 56. Jesus mentions that if he wanted to, he could call down 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion was about 600 troops. Or I'm sorry, 6,000 troops. So that would equal about 72,000 angels. This is when Peter severed the ear and the disciples fled. Zechariah 13.7 predicted that Jesus would be abandoned. Jesus was then led in the middle of the night as Thursday passed into Friday through a series of seven unfair trials. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie... It gives a very accurate depiction of what happened, starting with the Garden of Gethsemane. And I love how they tied the snake back to Genesis chapter 3. How many sat through the Passion of the Christ for the first time and couldn't even speak? Couldn't stop the tears, no matter how manly you were. Couldn't eat popcorn. As you just sit there and watch. And I remember sitting there. And the movie ends. And nobody leaves. We just sit there and stare. Because what we just saw was about as accurate. As anyone's ever come to depicting what happened that night. I want to walk through these seven unfair trials. As we lead up to the the, the end. And the point I really want to talk about tonight. Number one, the trials that Jesus underwent were completely illegal in both Jewish and Roman law. Why was it illegal? Number one, the judge was not impartial and there was no quorum. And they were hostile. Two, the arrest was done with no formal accusation. Three, Night sessions were absolutely illegal. Four, guilty verdicts could never be rendered on the same day. Five, search for hostile testimony was also illegal. Six, you can't use your own testimony against you. And seven, there was absolutely no legal evidence brought forth in any one of the seven trials. The first trial, as depicted in John chapter 18, happened at Annas' house. Now, Annas served as the high priest from 86 to 15. And then he was sort of an assistant from 18 to 36 AD under Caiaphas. It was during this trial that Jesus was slapped then Jesus was brought to Caiaphas' palace. Now Caiaphas was the head, the head. He was the leader. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57, walks through this. During this trial, false witnesses were brought. Caiaphas breaks the law when ripping his clothes. That's a Leviticus 21.10. 
During this time, Jesus was spit in the face. He was hit with fists. He was blindfolded during this second trial. And they asked him to prophesy who would hit him next. Now, as we walk through this, I really want you to put yourself in this scene. During this trial on the outside is when Peter denied Christ. In the same place a little later on, the third trial began, as depicted in Luke 22. Then they ushered him to Pilate's hall. It was now 6 a.m. in the morning when Jesus first met Pilate. Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. Again, they bring false witnesses. Pilate discovers that he's a Galilean, so he sends them to the fifth trial, Herod's palace. Luke 23, 7 through 12. And Herod, basically hoping Jesus would become a magician. And when he sees that Jesus was in no mood to play games and do tricks, and as Jesus stayed silent, Herod and the people began to mock Jesus. They dressed Jesus in robes. And then they sent him back to Pilate. In Pilate's hall we see the sixth unfair trial. This was about 7 a.m. in the morning. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 18. Let's read through this. Let's start in verse 29. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, would we not have handed him over to you? Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone. Which is weird because just a couple months later they executed Stephen. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. 
But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, as they slapped him in the face. This is now the seventh trial. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. Listen to Pilate over and over and over again. Pilate saying he's not guilty. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who has handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So here Jesus is, he's gone all night. He's been beaten, tortured. His beard's been plucked out. He's now been flogged. How many had to look away during that scene? They would flog using a cat of nine tails and they would dip it in tar and they would put shards of bone and lead and glass and they would wrap it around a body and they would pull it like a top, ripping all the skin. It was an excruciating way to be beaten. Jesus was tired He was beaten, face probably completely swollen up over the hours of beating, crown of thorns, no skin. Seven unfair trials leading to one of the craziest moments in the history of the world. And it involves three people with three problems. The first group of people were the priests. And for the priests, it was all about their past. So as we look at the priests, and as they look at the situation that they're in, their focus was the past. Now let's set this up. Out here were the Jewish people. Out beyond were the disciples. 
Down here were the Jewish leaders. The priests. All the Sanhedrin. Up here was Rome. Over here was Jesus. Or over there. And on the other side was Barabbas. Who was a zealot. He had pretty much every group of people all gathered together for one passion scene. And Pilate yells out to him, I find no reason to kill him. And then Pilate says the most important question that we still have to answer today. What am I to do with this man that you call Jesus? You see, the priests have been waiting for their Messiah. We've talked in, about the differences between a Sadducee and a Pharisee. The Sadducees were the upper class. They were the liberals of the day. They care, carried more about the social structure, about being friendly with Rome. As far as their belief in doctrine, they were actually fairly conservative. The Pharisees were the exact opposite. They were more conservative politically. They despised Rome. They despised Greek culture. And yet, they were a little more liberal in their views of doctrine. They actually did believe in heaven and resurrection. And so as Jesus walked the earth in his ministry, he would often argue with these two different groups for totally different reasons. He would go after the Pharisees because they were being legalists. And the priests, the Sanhedrin, are only focused on their past. They're still looking back to the Maccabean revolt that happened 160 years earlier. They're still hoping that the remnants of that revolt will uprise again and get rid of Rome once and for all. That will reestablish what it was like in the past when David sat on the throne. They were so focused on the past and what they wished it would be. And man, I w- and, and how many of us are like that? How many times have you looked back in your past to a specific moment and just, man, I wish I could spend another hour there. I wish I could go back to that time. I wish I can be part of it when uh, my group, when they were like this. Some of us, I wish our country was like it was then. And, or, or whatever it is. And we often look back in the past, man, the glory days. And while they were focused on the past, their Messiah walked right in front of them. While they were focused on their past and what they wished they could be, there stood the Savior of the world. What is your view of Jesus? What do you hope Jesus will come into your life and do? 
What do you hope he will restore? What is, where's your focus? The second group of people were the people themselves. And for the people, it was all about their present. The priest so badly wanted to be back to the time of David. The people just wanted peace. When Jesus came rolling in on the triumphal entry, there was a hope of peace. There was a hope of no more Rome, finally. And they had the wrong perception and the wrong impression of who Jesus was. Back in the day, 20 years, 100 pounds, I was a tennis player. And in high school, I remember we had the big day. And I, I went to Yakaipa High School and our big rival was Redlands. And, and I remember the day we played Redlands. And, and it was the assembly. And, and you know the assembly is weird when they, when they roll the tennis team out. The cheerleader's like, who are these guys? And so we're rolling out there. And, and they do this big old pep rally because we're playing Redlands. And for one time, hundreds of people showed up and surrounded the tennis courts. We were undefeated at the time. Redlands was undefeated at the time. Not only was our team undefeated at the time, me and my doubles partner were undefeated at the time. And we were blowing through competition. I remember playing one team and we looked across the net and, and we saw PE shorts. And we're like, oh, they recruited an hour earlier. And we used to play this game called Cokes that if my partner could hit them with a tennis ball, I'd have to buy him a Coke and vice versa. And so we're just gunning for him. And then comes Redlands. And you're nervous. All your friends are there. People you hope will be your friend are there. And we started playing. And we lost the first game. Oh. Lost the second game. Lost the third game. Fourth. Fifth. We lost the set 6-0. To their number threes. And we were the number ones. Then we played their number twos. Lost 6-0. Like, oh, this is awesome. Our whole team's getting demolished. And then we had to go play the number ones. They're ranked in, in California. They all look like Agassi. And, and, and we started playing. And about halfway through the set... Me and my friend looked at each other and said, they're playing Cokes, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are. And we just get demolished. And we watch as what was supposed to be something grand and glorious throughout the day, people just started slowly walking away. <laughs> and by the time the third set was done, no one was there. I think our coach left too. <laughs> and I see that with this. The people so excited. And then as they started seeing what was happening, they started going, whoa. That's not what I was expecting. That's not what the big pep rally was all about. That's not triumphal. We want a revolt. We don't want this. We don't want silence. We don't want... Some bloody figure up there? 
And throughout the course of the week, we see hallelujah go to crucify. Because they realized that Jesus was not their Messiah. The people were looking for change immediately. Not past, not future, change immediately. Peace. Comfort. A better economy. Just You can go down the list. And Jesus offered none of that. In fact, everything they heard about Jesus and what he said was the exact opposite. What do you mean, take up the cross? Are you crazy? And here's the irony of that moment that we cannot lose. Here's another guy named Barabbas. He's a murderer, by the way. He's a zealot. You want to know what's really ironic? Barabbas means... Bar Abbas, son of the father. We have two figures that the Jewish people are looking at. The real son of the father and Barabbas. One is offering something we don't want. This guy has already been jailed doing exactly what we want. Trying to overthrow Rome. Trying to get rid of them. Forget Jesus, we want Barabbas. And here's the crazy moment when I, I don't know, it was, it was several years ago when I was reading this going, man, these people are idiots. They've got Jesus and yet they want peace and all this kind of stuff. And then I realized, oh my goodness, what do I pray about all the time? God, if you can just bring some Relief to my life. God, if you can bring me some comfort. God, if you can fix the economy. God, if I can find a job. God, if you can fix this. God, now, 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 now. And it was at that moment I went, oh my gosh. I'm not praying to Jesus. I'm praying to Barabbas right now. How many times throughout our week, throughout our month, are we actually praying to the wrong son of the father? For something that Jesus is not necessarily offering. The people turned on Jesus because they were focused on the present. They were focused on the self. They wanted the now. What's your now? I know my now is what's your now. What's that one thing you need relief from right now? What's that thing that's stressing you out? There's a third person, and he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, and his name is Pilate. And for Pilate, it was all about his future. Here's where historians look at Pilate and go, hmm, everything we know about Pilate from history says one thing. However, the Gospels say something totally different about Pilate. History tells us that Pilate was a raging anti-Semite. He hated the Jews. He wasn't weak. Over and over and over again throughout history, Pilate is on the wrong side of the Jewish equation. Pilate doesn't cower to the Jews at any moment in history. Instead, he baits them and then kills them. But the Gospels 
depict a conflicted Pilate. Someone who is looking at Jesus going, I think he's innocent. A Jewish person, I think he's innocent. And yet the Jewish people are bullying Pilate. Never in history do we see that. So is the Bible wrong? For Pilate, it came down to four issues, all of them starting with S. The first issue was standards. When Pilate first came in, now to set the stage, Tiberius was the emperor. And during this moment, Tiberius Caesar is already retired. He's still over Rome, but he's tired to Capri. And his assistant, his right-hand man, a guy named Sejanus, is now basically ruling the empire at the time. And so Pilate is now the governor of Judea, or the procurator. And he normally lives in Caesarea, but during the festival times, because Jerusalem swells, he actually goes in, and he actually holds up residence, actually in Herod's palace. And they have a section called Pilate's Hall. And the Jews weren't even allowed to go in there, because it was... It was absolutely against their culture. So they'd have to wait on the outside. That's why Pilate had to come out. But when Pilate first was given the position, he was so arrogant. He was so anti-Jewish because the guy who appointed him, Sejanus, was also anti-Jewish. And he was trying to eradicate Jewish people from all over the empire. Very Nazi-esque. And so Pilate, when he first gets his position, he decides that he's going to bring in, in the middle of the night, a whole bunch of Roman standards, symbols, and place them all over the palace, knowing that this would infuriate the Jewish people. And when they woke up and saw this disgrace, they raced to Pilate's hall. And they got in front of him. And they said, take them down. Take them down. And this is recorded in history. And Pilate refused. And he said, if you do not leave, I'm going to kill you all. And this is exactly what the Jewish people did. They all got on their knees and bared their head like this. And Pilate actually relented. But he wouldn't make that mistake again. The second S... Was shields. And this time he brought them in and placed them all over Jerusalem. And this time the Jews petitioned Tiberius himself. And Pilate refused to take them down. And then we get to the third one. And I'll be honest, it's actually water, but I'm going to call it sparklets just to stay with the flow. Um, Pilate decides to build aqueducts, and Rome was famous for their aqueducts. And this was actually a good thing for Jerusalem. The problem is Pilate used temple money to do it. That was a no-no. 
And this infuriated the Jews so much that they again raced to Pilate. And they said, you have to take this down. You cannot use this. And this time, when Pilate said, I'm going to have you killed, he meant it. Because Pilate had a bunch of his soldiers soldiers dress up as Jewish people. And when he gave the signal, they pulled out a dagger and they started murdering the Jews. This is also recorded in history and it's also referenced by Jesus or by Luke. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered this way? And so, just in this brief moment in Luke, we hear this story about these Galileans who came down and, and, and were murdered by Pilate. And so Pilate, over and over again, was antagonistic. He baited the Jews. The Jews hated him. He hated them. So why was he so afraid? Goes back to the fourth S. And we've already mentioned his name. Sejanus. Here's the story of Sejanus. As Tiberius climbed up the ladder of power, so did Sejanus. And when Tiberius ended up became, becoming the emperor, the Caesar, Tiberius kept rising up until, Tiber, until Sejanus was number two in command. Sejanus was born around the same time Jesus was. They're about the same age. Sejanus had convinced Tiberius that people were out to kill him, which was a big worry for emperors that they might be assassinated. And so when Tiberius fled to an island to sort of retire there, he left Sejanus in control of Rome. Sejanus was the one that put Pilate in his position. Well, fast forward several years. All of a sudden, Tiberius gets wind that Sejanus is actually betraying him. And Tiberius sets out secretly to find out who is on Sejanus' side. And October 18th, 31 AD, he finally has the Roman Senate corner Sejanus. And he accuses him of treason. And they execute Sejanus. And Tiberius goes on a four-year manhunt for anybody who he thought was working with Sejanus. And if he found out they were, they were done. Who gave Pilate his job? Sejanus. Let's look at John. Let's continue. Chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate 
tried to set Jesus free. Again, he's trying to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting. And listen to what the Jewish leaders said. If you let this man go, you are no friend of who? Caesar. Anyone who claims to be king opposes who? Caesar. As you're reading through this now, you can just see Pilate's face drop. They had him. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement, which is in which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here's your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king, but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. The reason why Pilate changed is because he worried more about his future. The last thing Pilate needed in this moment in his career was an uprising started by a man who claimed to be Caesar. It's interesting how when we know history, all of a sudden we go, oh my goodness. But yet God was working this perfectly. Jesus was handed over to be crucified. Jesus grabbed the cross. Most likely he grabbed parabellum, just one piece of wood. And he carried it down the Via Dolorosa. Imagine that pain. As he's carrying this cross, most likely his arms are tied to it. Falling. I can't stand this way for five minutes without my arms going numb. And yet he's walking. Hardly any blood. He gets up to Golgotha, place of the skull. Laid down on a cross. They place spikes in his hands, most likely in his wrists. So they placed it here to rip through, probably. And he hung on the cross. The Messiah was placed on a cross. At around 9 a.m. He was on that cross for six hours. The way you died on a cross was through suffocation. Because you had to push up to breathe. Several things happened on the cross. One thing I want to point out was that thief on the cross next to him. Imagine that guy. Imagine that thief in the morning. He was nailed to a cross next to Jesus. And yet, at one point, he understands that Jesus is innocent. And he turns his life to Jesus. 
If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Jesus looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Imagine that thief in the morning, nailed to a cross, at night, wearing a crown. In the morning, an enemy of Caesar. At night, a friend of God. In the morning, hated and spurned by men. At night, having fellowship with angels. In the morning, he died a criminal on earth. At night, he lives as a citizen in heaven. That thief refutes a bunch of misnomers about how you can be saved. That thief was not a member of a church. That thief was not confirmed. He never took communion. And he never was baptized. Yet when he breathed his last breath and closed his eyes for the last time, he was in paradise with God. This Friday is Good Friday. And I want to encourage you to show up here at noon as we worship and we prepare our hearts for Jesus' resurrection. It's so critical. It's so easy to forget Jesus in the midst of all the celebration and all the fun things and all the pretty little dresses and the kids holding it. But it's all about Jesus. It's about the Messiah that was promised so many thousands of years earlier. The prophets as the thread rolled through the Old Testament leading up to this moment. It's about a Savior willingly laying down his life Willingly becoming sin on the cross so we would not have to. Justifying our sins, paying our debt. That Friday, Jesus died for our sins. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Saturday, only Matthew talks about what happened Saturday. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. Verse 62. The next day, this is Saturday, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know. So they went and they made the terms or the tomb secure by posting a seal or putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Friday, Jesus stood up as all three groups, the people, the priests and Pilate, all at one point said, crucify him. His disciples had already fled. They're nowhere. They're hiding. Jesus dies on the cross. John's there. Mary's there. 
for the most part, his disciples are gone. And probably one of the saddest moments in history, and mentally, maybe even more so than what happened Friday night, is what happened Saturday. After three and a half years of walking, living, laughing, loving, hanging with Jesus, listening to his words, sitting under his teaching, the only people that remembered Jesus' promise of the resurrection were his enemies. Here's what we need to understand. It's so easy as Christians to play the game and forget what Jesus said. But don't kid yourself. Satan knows exactly what he said. Satan knows exactly what's happening this Sunday all across the world. And he's ready to pounce. God's enemies are always ready. Where are we? Have we deserted him? Or maybe we're one of the three worried about the past, the present, and the future more than Jesus. So my, my challenge to you, and I say this fully getting that I need a big fat mirror here because I'm the same way. I'm no different. But maybe this Easter we can spend some time and focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Maybe take a moment this Friday. Maybe watch Passion of the Christ. Maybe watch it with your family. But take some time and focus in on exactly what Jesus did for us. That's what communion's all about. We're supposed to remember what Jesus did for us. But then we need to live like it. I want to encourage you. My wife is doing an incredible job at the invite friends. Not to attend Cornerstone, but to hear the gospel. And we hope, yes, that it's here. But it's not about blowing this place out. It's about making Jesus famous. And so do whatever you can to invite those who don't know Jesus. Use one of the flyers. Whatever it is. Get them here the next week. Whether they like Nick Foles or they hate the Eagle, doesn't matter. Just get them here. Because our most important mission is to tell people about Jesus. And for my own life, I I definitely need to stop praying to Barabbas. Because I fall into that trap all the time. And refocusing in on God's will in my life. And Jesus, what would you have me do today? What would you have me sacrifice? What is my cross today? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Heavenly Father, I I thank you for Jesus. Forgive me for taking him for granted. Forgive us for forsaking him in so many areas of our life. 
Forgive us for our stress, our anxiety, our worries about something in the past, maybe something now, maybe something in the future. Give us the wisdom to see this moment as you see it, just like you saw it 2,000 years ago. Give us the courage to reach out to those who don't know Jesus, to bring them to a place where they will hear the gospel, the good news, to be that person in their life that, that helps close the gap. Heavenly Father, I pray if there's anyone in here tonight that does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That they will not leave this place tonight without calling on his name. Heavenly Father, I pray for Lynn tonight, who's still battling sickness. Heavenly Father, keep the enemy away from him. Heal him. Prepare his mind, his heart, his body, his soul for the message he's going to give eight times this weekend. Prepare the hearts of those who, for many of them, don't even realize they're going to be here Sunday. I lift them up. I lift the people that brought them. Heavenly Father, I lift the leadership here at Chandler, the leadership at Santan. Give us the peace and the patience to be able to accept such a big crowd. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that as we get closer, that we look back and we remember what Jesus did for us. We remember the pain he went through so we wouldn't have to. The sin he bore to wash us white as snow. And the promise he gave us that when we die, we will open our eyes to the creator of the universe forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. We love you and we praise you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, I know Kaboom's just letting out. So if there are any questions, I can answer questions. I could be up front. Um, Yeah, well, I'll just be up here. So if you have questions, come on down. Thank you so much. Come this Sunday, this Saturday. Um, It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. Mm